From the Orange County Fire Authority, this is the Pass Along Podcast, where we address firefighter issues from top to bottom, from your helmet down to your boots. Now, here's your host. Hi, and welcome back to the OCFA Pass Along Podcast. My name is Jeff Hughes, and I'm a fire captain currently assigned to risk management as the Cancer Awareness and Prevention Captain. I'm going to be your host for this podcast, actually for this six-part series on our podcast. We're doing something a little different than normal. On October 24th and 25th, the OCFA hosted a behavioral health conference titled Past, Present, and Future. Since then, we've been preparing the presentations from that event so we can make them available to everyone who wasn't able to attend. You can find the video versions of the presentations in our show notes of each podcast episode as well as on Vimeo on the OCFA page. This is the first podcast in our six-part series and features our first speaker of the day, Kim Lightly from U.S. Forest Service and a member of the Prineville Hotshots. She survived the South Canyon fire on Storm King Mountain and now works on stress first aid for wildland firefighters. Here's Kim. So I heard our first presenter last year at the Wildland Wildland Fire Risk Management Summit. Her compelling story of the South Canyon Fire incident back in 1994 uh, was at a time where, like the fire chief had said, we hadn't really identified that behavioral health piece, right? What do we do? when we have that emotional trauma. Uh, And so trying to kind of uh, navigate those stormy waters without having a clear path was something that we can all learn from. Um, She was a member of the Prineville Hotshots during Storm King Mountain incident, where 14 of her teammates perished in that fire. Because of the... uh, I don't want to say a lack of a plan at the time. They didn't have uh, that roadmap for how we treat that emotionally uh, traumatic incident for their people, right? And so uh, she represents the past of this incident or this issue that we're trying to kind of get our arms around uh, as far as behavioral health. Kimberly Lightly is an outgoing presenter Uh, with demonstrated knowledge in stress management and trauma-related fields, skilled in delivering uh, mechanisms of coping, pre-incident planning, and peer support models in preparation and mitigation of stress associated with firefighting occupation. Um, Going right off her bio here, right? 1994 South Canyon uh, fire survivor, behavioral health subject matter expert, Uh, She did coursework in group crisis intervention, assisting individuals in crisis, strategic response to crisis, suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention. National Fallen Firefighter Certified Instructor in Stress First Aid for Firefighters and EMS Personnel. Uh, She was a speaker at the ICISF 10th and 14th uh, World Congress, the National and international public speaker for both structural and wildland uh, fire venues. Please welcome former member of the Prineville Hotshots and current U.S. Forest Service Critical Incident Response Specialist, Kimberly Lightly. 
thank you all for showing up today. And, and uh, it's an honor for me to share my story. Um, a lot of times I'm just, I'm not just, but I'm at training, you know, the academy level or, or different venues, and, and I'm presenting stress first aid for wildland firefighters. And that's, I'm going to give you a little um, snippet of that later on. But this venue is, is so um, important to me because I get to talk about my crew. And um, so I appreciate your, your invite and uh, time. In 1949, August 5th, 1949, a wildland fire in northern Montana overcame and killed 13 firefighters. When I first heard of this incident, I was an 18-year-old U.S. Forest Service employee. It was my first year in fire. I was at a guard school in Oregon, just south of Bend, Oregon. We were learning about firefighting tactics and strategies, fire weather forecast, and all that good stuff, right? We got to light a fire. We got to dig line. We got to get dirty. And we learned about this incident and in, you know, entrapments and in near misses. And, and I found out it was the Man Gulch fire. And I thought to myself, and I know as an 18-year-old and that little piece of invincibility, um, I probably felt a little sadness, you know, for their families and, and um, loved ones. Um, boy, 1949, you know. And I know, I guarantee you, I dismissed it with the thought that something like that could never happen to me. So I went on to have a pretty uh, exciting career. I caught the bug, and uh, the next year I was on an engine crew in Sisters Ranger District, still with the U.S. Forest Service. We had a 500-gallon engine. We, we responded to lightning bust, right? We'd have a lightning storm come through, and we'd chase smokes for a couple weeks. And if we got lucky, those little smokes would get bigger, and then we'd have to call in the retardant plane. And, and so that kind of... Um, fueled my desire for more action. I, was, I, was, I had become an adrenaline junkie, right? So in 1992, my dream came true, and I landed a position on the Prineville Interagency Hotshot Crew in Prineville, Oregon. And for those of you familiar with Hotshot Crews, it's a 20-person crew, or Type 1. Um, my crew in 1994 um, had 15 men and 5 women. We were um, pretty stellar. We were uh, brothers and sisters. We would fight and laugh and do everything together. Um, you know, 92, 93, 94. Um, yeah, the brother sisterhood was was uh, was tr was so amazing. So 94, um, the state of California, bless their hearts, they um, invited us down to um, to Kings Canyon Wilderness. We went to Lake Isabella, and I think it was 110 degrees. We had all gotten poison oak up at Kings Canyon, so now we're down here and, and cut in line in the middle of the day. And this is me in the, in the back of the line here, um, digging line. I remember this fire being very explosive. Um, the heat was so intense, obviously you guys know this, and we're, we're shaded up under a tree and somebody said, hey, we want the Primeville crew to go up on this ridge line and dig some line up there. And, you know, my superintendent on the crew was, was you know, talking to the, you know, the 
the division or whatever. And he's like, no, I don't know about that. And lo and behold, a couple seconds later, that whole hillside had exploded up in flames, you know. And so coming from timber country in Oregon and looking at this, you know, just the very explosive, you know, ness of vegetation in Southern Cal, it was, it was a huge learning um, huge learning curve. We went back up to Oregon for another fire. And like your chief just mentioned, we were gone 21 days. 1994, there was no cell phones. Um, I remember many times going to the convenience store if we happened to go through a town and I'd get a postcard and I'd send a postcard home to my mom. If we were lucky, there would be a pay phone and there wasn't a line of 50 firefighters trying to call home. But that's how we would, you know, keep in touch with home. So basically our families back then, they just knew, mom knew she wouldn't hear from me for a month. That was normal. Um, everything we had on our person was in a red bag. And it was enough. And yes, <clears throat> I became a chemist later in life. But I was very anal. And so I had 21 pairs of underwear, 21 pairs of socks. And everything that I owned was in stuffed in that red bag. It was important. So... Anyway, we're back in Oregon, and um, you know we were gone 21 days, and our crew, you know, we were pretty dirty. I mean, that was a sign of you know strength and toughness, right? So actually, um, on the 22nd day, the agency gave us a day off, and it happened to be on July 4th, Independence Day, and we were near Crater Lake National Park. Anybody ever been there? It's gorgeous, right? So our crew superintendent, he. He, uh, he drove all around Crater Lake National Park, and it's, it's a crater, it's a beautiful turquoise lake, it's like the deepest in the United States, it's just beautiful, and it's 26 miles around this, this crater, and every pullout, the superintendent would pull off, and he would order the crew out of the crew buggies, and we had two of these crew buggies that would hold 10 crew members each. So every pullout, we're like, yeah, Tom, it's a good, it's pretty. <laughs> Finally, that afternoon, we get, you know, we get around the lake and we, we go shopping at the gift store for gifts for our nieces and nephews and, and all. So uh, we were at the gift store and, oh my gosh, you know, we're looking pretty good here. Let's get our, um, our crew, crew picture. And so we all lined up in our pretty blues and uh, smiled. Little did we know, two days later, Doug Dunbar, Bonnie Holtby, John Kelso, Levi Brinkley, Tammy Bickett, Scott Blecka, Terry Hagen, Rob Johnson, Kathy Back would die on South Canyon Fire in Storm King. So on July 5th, we heard that uh, Colorado had been pummeled by lightning in days prior, and we were excited. Nobody on our crew had fought fire in Colorado before. So we get on a big jet, and we flew around the northwest, and we picked up three other hotshot crews, so four hotshot crews landing Grand Junction the night of July 5th. It was too late to get our fire, fire orders that evening, so we all bedded down in this huge football field. And there was crews from all over the United States, and you know, hundreds and hundreds of firefighters there to help battle the the blazes in Colorado so 
on our crew, we had the buddy system, and we had five women on the crew. My best friend, Tammy Bickett, was my buddy, and I tried to keep track of that girl for years, but um, we had to know where each other was at all times. So we always would bed down you know, our sleeping bags next to each other. In the morning of July 6th, I remember waking up, and typically our crew superintendent, he would wake us up in the wee hours in the morning. He was always waking us up at 4 in the morning and getting us up and getting us rolling. Well, this particular morning, July 6th, I woke up, and it was light already. The sun was rising, and I was panicked because I was like, oh, no, I missed. I missed the call. And I remember whipping over in my sleeping bag, and Tammy was still there, and her chin was resting in her, in her hands, and she was looking towards these cliffs. They're called book cliffs. And all the smoke particulates in the Colorado sky was casting these glorious hues of color on these cliffs. And I just remember that picture as vivid as yesterday, or maybe even this morning. Um, and I always tell this story, and I, th I thought it was maybe a little sappy at first, but then a long time ago, I was up in Anchorage, um, Alaska, telling the story, and there's a kid in the audience, and he was, he was nodding his head, and he, and he was a member of the uh, Midnight Suns hotshot crew, and he was in that football field that same morning, and he remembered the sunrise. So I thought, it's cool. I'll keep telling the story. So... You know, in the, you, I don't know, in the fire department, in the structural world, if you have a little rivalry with your nearby, you know, departments, who gets the most calls, who gets the fire calls, uh, same thing with hotshot crews, you know, we had Redmond hotshots there, we had Zigzag hotshots there, Moses Lake hotshots, and it's like, we want the, we want the retardant planes, right, we want the columns, we want the, the game. So, everyone's waiting for their fire orders on July 6th. Zigzag, you guys are going to go to the southwest corner of Colorado, big project fire, you know. So uh, they wait for their transportation, and here it comes. It's one of those uh, tour buses with the tinted windows and the padded seats. So the crew gets on their little tour bus, and they take off. Redmond Hotshots, you too are going to the southwest corner of Colorado, big project fire, retardant planes, the whole show. And they wait for their transportation, and it's another tour bus with the tinted windows, and they get on, they take off. Prineville Hotshots, you guys are going to go east on I-70 to a little town called Glenwood Springs, Colorado. There's a lightning strike in days prior. It's kind of smoldering around in Gamble Oak, Pinion Pine. You're going to go mop up. <laughs> and it was like, oh, man, we come all the way to Colorado, and we're going to mop up. Okay, that was my my mindset. It's like, dang. So we wait for our transportation, we wait, and we wait, and here it comes. And it's an old yellow school bus. So we get on our bus, and we're heading down to I-70, and sure enough, Storm King Mountain comes into view. And, uh, and then the fire came into view. And sure enough, it's a wispy, benign, benign fire. It's like, oh man, you know, there's some smoke jumpers up there, a BLM crew. Um, a small BLM crew. We're just going to be mopping up for days. So here we are with our red bags. And keep in mind, we didn't have digital camera. We had the old-fashioned film camera. And I um, luckily took a lot of pictures back in those days. So here we are packing our red bags because they're going to helicopter load those red bags up there. So we're going to camp up there and, you know, obviously mop up for weeks. <laughs> so... 1300 in the afternoon on July 6th, there's one helicopter manning the fire. 
uh, could hold five members of the crew at one time, took two shuttle missions of our crew up to the mountain. Half the crew went into the west drainage to help the jumpers, the smoke jumpers that were on site, do some under um, line improvement, um, some uh, when we dig down to mineral soil. And so they were doing a line improvement down the west drainage. The fire started, you know, acting up. There was some runs up some of the drainages, and uh, because there was one helicopter manning the entire fire, they called off shot, shuttling up the remainder of the hotshot crew, and they hooked up to a bucket, and they started doing bucket drops. So that left myself, and uh, there was nine other uh, Primeville members down at this residential area. And we were very impatient. We knew half the crew was up there working hard already. We wanted to get up there. We were trying to strategically figure out, you know, can we hike in there faster than this helicopter is going to come get us? You know, we were very impatient. The foreman on our crew, so we have the superintendent, and then we had a foreman, and then we had three squad bosses, and then we had the crew members, so the hierarchy. The foreman on the crew was with me, and he kept calling up to the superintendent, who was up on the fire, and say, hey, Tom, you know, we got this windsock down here at the, you know, Hellespot here, and it's flying straight out, you know, just FYI. A little bit later, our foreman would call the superintendent and goes, hey, Tom, got this thunder cell building to the south. And sure enough, I mean, the pictures are as vivid as yesterday, right? I see the thunder cell, and it's to the south, and it was like, copy, copy. 1500 in the afternoon, the remaining Primeville hotshots who were in this residential area were helicoptered up to the ridge line. When I got off the helicopter, because it was a knife ridge, meaning it dove down into the west drainage and it dove down into the east drainage, um, there was an assumption in my mind that I was going to be joining the remaining, you know, the Primeville crew that was down in the west drainage. However, the incident commander on the fire said, no, um, you know, we got this town of Glenwood Springs to the east. We need to build a, a, a swath here, 40 feet wide, void of vegetation. So we had a lot of gamble oak here, right? And so you guys are familiar with that, hopefully, that type of vegetation. But so, you know, we had Sawyers on the crew. I was a swamper. So we started cutting the gamble oak. And it was, um, it was, it was cake duty, okay? It was easy, because all they did is they cut this gamble oak, and um, all I had to do as a swamper was pick it up and throw it straight in the air, because the wind was so strong up in that ridge line. So we have that, and it just happened. That hair in the back of your head that, you know, sometimes tingles for you when you perceive danger. We weren't perceiving danger yet. It was, it was almost entertaining at that time. Sustained winds, 45, 50 mile per hour. Woohoo! Having a good time because we're mopping up, right? So, as we're building, you know, this, this swath void of vegetation, we do our line and we're, we're bumping up the ridge line a little bit. There was a branch of a, I think, a juniper or something over the fire line. So, I remember taking my line gear off, and that's where my fire shelter is, right? So, I took my line gear off, set it by a tree. And I, you know, got this huge limb, and I was working it into the east drainage because there's no fire down in the east. So I was working it over there, and um, that's when that hair kept, you know, the tingling was starting. It was like, I better get my pack back on. It just doesn't feel right. I better get my pack back on. 
On up the ridge, I had a radio. Not everyone on our crew had communications. I was lucky. I was number 10 in line. So when we're digging line as a 20-person crew, we bump and go, bump and go. I mean, we could dig a lot of line fast. I was number 10, so I had a radio. I wasn't a squad boss or anything important. I was just number 10, so I was in the middle of the line, so I could hear things. Well, I heard that there was a small BLM crew just up the ridge line from us that had a spot fire across the line. It was torching out. So our crew, there was nine Primeville still in the west drainage with the smoke jumpers, and there was 11 of us up on the ridge line. And so we bumped up to see if we could help the Bureau of Land Management crew. Now I'm U.S. Forest Service, you know, so there again, we've got some good rivalries there. But, you know, the BLM had a spot fire, so let's go help them. Well, when we got there, the helicopter was there. Kid you not, that the winds were so strong, the bucket was just swirling, and there was no water hitting the fire, and the flames were 50, 100 feet tall. And so it's like, but we were told to hold up. We couldn't get to the spot fire because our superintendent said, you know, hold up. We heard our squad boss, John Kelso, in the west drainage. He had called up. He said, hey, Tom, we got a spot across the draw. Hey, Tom, we got a spot across the draw. So in the west drainage, debris, something had rolled down below the crew, below the smoke jumpers and the hot shots, and it was blowing up the west drainage. So our superintendent called down to, to uh, Kelso on the radio saying, you guys better get out of there. So after that, things exploded. This was 1604, right? We landed up there at 1500. One hour later, the mountain had exploded to what you see here. Um, at this time, I was strong, confident. I was the sixth year firefighter. We had ran to safety zones before. so no. I mean, at that time, it was a big deal, but it was like, okay, we got this. We were told there was a, on up the ridge line, there was a, uh, a helispot that had been cleared days prior, and that's going to be our safety zone. So we started running, and I was, like I said, you know, pretty confident we were going to make that. And um, back in the day, I was probably pretty tough, and so I was actually leading the whole, you know, all the folks going up on that ridge line to to our safety zone. I had my Sawyer right beside me. He was still wearing his earplugs. He was still running with his chainsaw, right? We don't put our tools down. We, you know, especially the chainsaw. So he's running. He's got his earplugs. He doesn't even know what's going on, but Kim's running, so I'm running after her, right, is basically what Alex told me. So we get up the ridge line, and the fire front is on our right, and, uh, you know, Reports at that time, well, the investigation report, you know, 300-foot flame links, quarter-mile wide. And um, so when, we, when I was approaching this huge boulder and I could see the top of this uh, ridge line where the safety zone was, um, once I got to these boulders, it was just this churning blackness in front of me, and we had been cut off. So Alex, my Sawyer, said all he remembers is watching my boots, and I r jumped up on a rock, did a 180, and started sprinting down the ridge line. So now Alex is like, okay, I'm going to turn around and follow Kim. He still couldn't hear anything. Obviously, you all know uh, fire front and the, and the sound it, it, it creates by then. Some of our crew members said they turned around, they saw Alex and I um, running through a wave, 
you know, of, of the flame front. So as we were coming down, I was still strong and confident. Now the flame front's on my left. And all those little stops, you know, um, that we had just cut off. And there was a BLM firefighter in front of me, and he was running slow. And I remember being using my voice and saying, run faster! And then getting to those stops and seeing how hard it was to run through that. It was like running through a pegboard, you, your footing, right? And so still cognitively, I was like, watch your footing, don't fall. Run, you know, run. <laughs> it was just, the yelling was so intense at this time, but we had just got down into the, the swell where the helicopter had just dropped us off. And, you know, there it was pretty chaos by then. You know, we we're waiting for our crew to come up the, out of the west drainage. Um, you know, people were ordering us to go into the east drainage. Some of the helitech boys um, were going to the north. I mean, it was a scatter and run, right? I remember seeing my foreman on my crew, and I ran up to him, and uh, he said three words to me. He said, pull your shelter. And uh, we, we go, and I know our, our good psychologist will probably talk about it, but we go from fight to fight. And then there's that component of freeze. And it was like a, a light switch in my brain. So I went from strong, confident, using my voice to click. And it was nothing. And one of my crew members, he pulled my shelter for me. And so I was holding it. And we dove into the east drainage, maybe 30 feet, 30, 40 feet. And that's when that flame front hit the top of the ridge line where we were just standing. And uh, this is when I, I totally froze. I mean, we talk bodily functions, everything. I'm done. And it was, um, you know, you, you could only imagine, I'm, I know you can, you've heard it, the sound of that freight train. And uh, it was almost as if um, it got a little quiet in my mind. And, and I was okay with that. And that's, that's the other thing that was like, I'm, I'm good. And so I was, I, I just stood. And the foreman on the crew, of course, everyone's running in and getting into the East Drainage for our escape route. And uh, obviously, I wasn't coming. So he started yelling at me, Cam, Cam. And uh, one of the guys on my crew is named Kip. So Kip is farther down into the East Drainage, and he's hearing our foreman yelling, Kim, and he thought it was Kip. And so he's running back up the drain. I mean, it was just chaos, right? So I still wasn't moving. The foreman came up to me, and you'll see a clip a little bit later. But um, he basically got in my face and with some really strong profanity. And uh, the order of get mad, get mad. And he started using. He says he used his helmet. I'm not sure if it was a fist or helmet, but he started punching me in the head. And uh, I got mad. I remember that flip came back on, and we were, I mean, I was diving on my belly to get through all of that gamble oak that we had just thrown into the east drainage. And I mean, it was just so thick. You couldn't, you couldn't get through the brush component. So just, you know, years ago, or a couple years ago, I was, I was actually swimming in that you know, that, the movement of the, the stroke and trying to get through the, the brush. So we got into the East Drainage. It was a 40-minute escape route, which is insane, because all the while the, the column obviously blew up and it was going over towards us. And so it was just, it was like snow in winter. It was just dropping embers and 
um, snowflakes of ash, and um, it the column uh, blacked out the sun. It went from a blue sky day to to black. So all the while we're going down this drainage, and there's um, there's wa waterfalls to scale. I mean, we were rolling down these these rock faces, and I mean, it was pretty crazy time. And and you know, in my mind, and I knew nothing really about psychology at the time. Um, but I was thinking of white walls, white sheets. I was thinking, I can't wait to lay down on white sheets. I just, and I remember white light and white curtains. I mean, it was just a, obviously I was in shock, <laughs> but it was just, it was almost helping me get some peace up here. On the radio, of course, we're trying to find our crew. It's just, you know, talking over talk, you know, people are talking over themselves and we're trying to find Kelso, trying to find Bickett, trying to find, you know, anybody who had a radio who was in the West drainage. So we got to I-70, you know, traffic's going by like normal. And uh, I remember going up to my superintendent and of course my buddy, right? I'm in charge of Tammy, where's Tammy? And he's like, I don't know. So they shuttled the survivor or the, the crew members that had come down the east drainage. We went into the town of Glenwood Springs to the a warehouse of the Bureau of Land Management. The column, you know, the, the fire was approaching Glenwood. They were talking evacuations of that side of town. Um, and uh, the crew circled up, the Primeville crew circled up, um, the survivors and, and Alex, the Sawyer, he's like, I think we need to pray. And so we, uh, we said a prayer for peace because we had heard there was shelter deployments up on that mountain. We, we knew that was our crew. Our crew deployed, they're okay. So let's pray for peace, right? Because you can't imagine what it's like being in shelter in that storm. And then after that, I found a dark room and I laid down and I went to sleep. And then uh, a nice paramedic found me and woke me up probably an hour later, maybe not, maybe it was only 10 minutes, who knows. But um, asking me who I am, you know, where are you at? Do you know what happened? Um, and they deemed it necessary to, to take me to the, to, to the hospital. So I must say, at this time, um, there's no physical injuries, right? I had no physical injuries. I didn't inhale a lot of smoke or anything like that. Um, but the mental injuries is, is what lasted um, for years. So about 2200 that night, the foreman on the crew, the one that had knocked, you know, sense into me and, and flipped the switch back on, he came to my bedside at the hospital and, and he said, uh, we lost the Primeville nine that were down in the West drainage. We lost three smoke jumpers and the, the helitech crew, the guys on the helicopter who was with me on the ridgeline who chose to run north instead of east, um, their bodies hadn't been found. So, 14. The next morning, um, I'm reunited with the surviving crew members, and we're placed back in our little school bus, and they shipped us back to Grand Junction. Um, Grand Junction. So, true. 1994, we didn't have um, behavior health. Behavior health? No. That wasn't even something we would talk about. Um, there was a an attempt of a debriefing in Grand Junction. They brought in all those hotshot crews, so there's hundreds of people at the debriefing. 
Primeville survivors may have gotten up and walked out, you know. Um, I don't remember that, but the crew members told me that we all walked out. Um, but they did some good things there. Remember I, I mentioned all those people on that football field the evening on July 5th. Well, they brought all those hotshot crews back to that hotel that we were staying at. So there's hundreds of hotshots and hundreds of firefighters. They weren't necessarily hotshots, but there was hundreds of firefighters who get it, right? Because even though we were in the bullseye, they all understood what we were going through and they were all crying and, and, and grieving along with us. So it was, it was a community of family members that really did understand. And it was an interesting, um, you know, we, we stayed there for days <laughs> at this hotel in Grand, Grand Junction. A, we um, needed to get, you know, logistics back in those days, trying to get us home, um, had to get the bodies identified. Had, you know, there was a lot of stuff. And our superintendent on the crew, he didn't want to go home. He didn't want to leave this family, this community of support. He wanted to stay in Grand Junction as long as possible because he knew once he went home, you know, the families would be like, you know, he felt responsible for their death. So he wanted to stay. Our foreman on the crew was like, no, we need to get the survivors home to their families as soon as possible. So there was this debate, when do we go home? We don't have, well, we probably do have those debates these days, but uh, we know we expedite getting firefighters back to their families, especially after line of duty deaths and serious injuries. So, um, but back then there was a debate, how long do we stay? Um, which is fascinating to me when I look back. So they brought the family, the brotherhood, the sisterhood to us at that time. Um, so that was good. So that, uh, I want to save enough time to, to go over um, what I currently do, so I'm, I'm going to stop there. But, um, you know, the days following were not good. Uh, the weeks following were not good. Um, about a month out from South Canyon Storm King surviving, the agency didn't know what to do with me. The U.S. Forest Service didn't know what to do with me. So they're like, oh, yeah, when Kim was on that engine cruise, she used to be a lookout. She used to sit up on a tower and look out for wildfires. Let's put her back in a tower and um, so she could, you know, go look out. <laughs> so they put me as a fire lookout on Black Butte, which is um, 8,000 foot or 770, I don't know what it is. But anyway, seven to 8,000 foot Butte Mountain. Um, and there was a little cupola up on top, and quite literally, I was a lookout looking for fires in the months of September and October of 94. And uh, keep in mind, no cell phones, no nothing. So the only communication, oh, it was a roadless area too. You had to hike in there two miles to get there. So I was in this cupola, and the only communications I had with humans was calling dispatch, Redmond dispatch in the morning saying, Black Butte checking in and then Redmond Dispatch at night saying, Black Butte, checking out. And thinking back, it's like, whoa, talk about isolation. <laughs> I did have a dog. I had my black lab, Amanda, and uh, I think that dog saved my life. So, because um, I didn't check out, but it was an option. It was definitely an option. Uh, fast forward, I left the US Forest Service by 1997. I tried to stay. The intrusive thoughts, the slideshow, um, just wasn't happening. I left fire. Uh, 
1997, I, um, I left for good, I thought, and I became a pharmaceutical research chemist. And I wore a, lab, a white lab coat, goggles, the gloves. I was making medicine. I was going to Groton, Connecticut, working for Pfizer. I mean, I disappeared. I ran away as fast as I could, and I didn't look back until the sight, sound, smells, taste, and touch, right? The intrusive dreams and the nightmares and all that stuff just came back with a vengeance about 2000. 10 years later, 10, 11 years later, boom. And I could not get this fire out of my brain, the sound. I couldn't, uh, <laughs> y'all know that. So um, I said I was going to stop my story for now. So I'm back. I'm no longer a pharmaceutical research chemist. I didn't like that anyway, right? Um, so the agency brought me back in uh, about four years ago now, but uh, the journey began before then, and I have to thank the structural world for bringing me back. It was a rookie structural class, no graduating class, November 2006, the Redmond Bend Fire Department, and they wanted me to come tell your story. And I'm like, no, I don't tell South Canyon story. I, no, I've not told it for 12 years. Why would I start now? <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> one of the gentlemen um, had gone to ground zero for 9-11. And he had been there for a month. And he, uh, or in, the, in, in New York City right after 9-11, and he came back from that and he told his story. He was a Ben Fire Department um, training chief. And, and he said, you know, it was very cathartic for me to talk about 9-11. And I actually had to go to the dictionary and look up the word cathartic. <laughs> I didn't know what that really truly meant. And so I looked it up and I'm like, okay, I'll give you this once, once. And so I went and I told my story of South Canyon. And uh, it just kind of, I, I think there was a spark of healing with that first talk. And all of a sudden I got hooked up with the National Fallen Firefighter Foundation, and I started teaching on their taking care of our own classes, went to local assistant state teams, and I mean, the agency was bringing me back, and we were talking behavioral health and mental health. 2013, the behavioral health rollout in Baltimore, and I was at this conference, and they were talking stress first aid for firefighters and EMS personnel. And I remember being in this huge conference hall, and it was a sea of blue and brass. It was all structural. There was one guy in a green pickle suit, we call it, the US Forest Service, one guy in this sea of blue and brass. And I looked, and I'm like, I got to know who this person is. So I beelined over, hello. <laughs> and, I, and this is 2013, and his name was Bob Baird. He's our fire director here in Region 5 so you all know, he for the US Forest Service. But Bob, at that time, was deputy fire director at the Washington, D.C. office. I'm like, Bob, we need stress first aid in the wildland community. We need to bring it. Um, we don't talk about things. This is 2013, right? We have our critical incident stress management. We have our peer support and that stuff. But we need something for the whole spectrum of stress. That pre-incident planning to response to the aftermath. And stress first aid looked appealing. 
So Bob and I corresponded. By 2014, I had a position in the Washington, D.C. office, risk management in behavior health. So I look at human performance. So there's a lot of different things going on in U.S. Forest Service, one of which is we brought stress first aid for wildland firefighters to our agency and the interagency. We also have comprehensive well-being, we have mindfulness, we have human performance and optimization where we look at sports physiology and, and nutrition and all that stuff. We have the apprenticeship program um, where we're incorporating all these things. So, I mean, there's a movement, there's a big movement and it's exciting to me. So I term it um, a continuum of support. It's so important to give our folks prediction that invincible 18-year-old um, who dismissed things uh, like it could never happen to me. We need to prepare those people. So the preparedness piece, the response, and then the recovery. So today I'm going to just touch really quickly on our on our stress first aid wildland fire. Um, I was just in Tucson yesterday morning. We were kicking off a train the trainer. Uh, we do a lot of train the trainers down at the National Advanced Fire Resource Institute in in, uh, in Tucson. So what is stress first aid? It's basically the same thing that we've all been taking since we were kids. We want to preserve life, you know, the first aid classes. Make safe, stop the spread of worsening of the damage, reduce the suffering. Decide what level of care they need. Is it just, you know, let's go for a coffee or is it, hey man, I'm going to get you some help you need. So to provide that, get them to that higher level of care when needed. So what is it? It's a flexible framework that give guidance to how to quickly assess. So we're, we're just giving another tool to our folks. We, uh, when we rolled out stress first aid for wildland firefighters, we went around to four different hotshot crews and gave them the full you know, four hour class before fire season, if there is a before fire season. I know that's kind of doesn't happen much anymore, but we gave it to them in the spring and then we followed up in, in the fall, late fall, and said, did you guys use it? Is it applicable? And so um, it was just a tool. It was just a tool for them. A way to preserve well-being, a practical tool. So the great minds of the psychology world, they, they identified these five areas that, that helps in that immediate midterm, you know, after trauma or, or incidents. Um, provide safety, provide um, calming, connectedness, um, the competencies, and, and then the promotion of hope. So stress for state models, some of you probably have seen this. Um, stress for state actually was developed, it was combat operational stress for state. It was um, developed by the U.S. Marines and Navy in the late 2008, 2000, yeah, I believe around 2008. So what the National Fallen Firefighter did foundation did is they took this model and they adapted it to a civilian model. So basically there's seven C's because it was developed by the Navy. Good job. Okay, so it looks check, coordinate, cover, calm, connect, competence, and confidence. It looks very linear, doesn't it? You don't go through the check. I mean, you don't go through the, the list here and go, okay, I covered and I calmed them and I, now I'm gonna connect them. It's very um, fluid. It just looks linear. So what you're doing all the time, every day you walk into the office or into the firehouse or you know, every time you wake up in the morning, you kind of know the pulse of the family. You know if the kid had a good night's sleep or not and uh, um, you get into the firehouse and you know who had a good night and who didn't, right? So we, we know people. 
you know, we know our people. We know their pulse, and we know when they're deviating from normal behavior or just not themselves, right? So we know we're, we're not cognitively going, I'm going to check on you and check on you and check on you. We just know because we're family. Coordination is what we're doing today. We're coordinating resources. We're talking about things. We're, we're coordinating. So um, get help. Refer as needed. But this is in your Rolodex. This is what your, your pre-planning looks like. You're coordinating all the time. So check and coordinate happens all the time. And that's when you identify, hey, this person's not doing so well. Maybe I just need to bring them into the, you know, in our live style, we have a lot of folks in remote locations. So hey, maybe I'm just going to bring somebody in and connect them again with humans, right? So um, then you identify what their needs are. This is stress for staying. So Dr. Patricia Watson, she was with the US Navy at the time, but uh, now she works for the National Center for PTSD. She's the co-author of, of um, Stress First Aid. Stress First Aid is meant to be first aid. We hope that it can be implemented in a very uh, easy way for people, that it comes naturally to people to just be there, support somebody, reach out, you know, lend a helping hand, ask them how they're doing. It doesn't have to be a fancy mental health intervention. It's supposed to be just um, raising people's awareness that these factors are important, that when you're in a culture like this, Oftentimes, this type of support has to come from within the culture, not from somebody outside the culture. And to have it be a situation where you're just, you know, simply showing that you care, being kind, giving people some tips on what helped you to get through things, that type of thing. We hope that it's a very easy and natural process for people. Okay. So we talk about stress injuries. Um, you know, a lot of times when um, I like the word injury, um, that to me was illustrated, you know, we, you know, in first aid, you might break your arm or something and, you know, you have to put a splint on it and that sort of thing. I mean, it's an injury and, um, I mean, you could choose not to go to the doctor and get a cast on it, right? But your body heals, right? The cells regenerate and all that good stuff. However, um, it just works better if you went and got a cast put on it. And so when I was trying to navigate the trauma I experienced as well as the grief I experienced post-South Canyon, you know, I didn't go to, I didn't go seek help because I was pretty tough. You didn't cry. You don't show that type of emotions. And so um, I should have probably gone uh, early. Back in the day, we used to, you know, the computers, they didn't automatically save your documents and stuff. So it was always save often, save early, save often, save early. So I always think, man, I should, you know, talk often, talk early. Uh, that was kind of what I learned out of it. So because I didn't, um, because I didn't go in quickly for my injuries, uh, I didn't seek help for my injuries. Um, you know, it was a very long-term, um, arduous journey to to have help. So these four causes: um, traumatic injury, obviously, um, the helplessness piece, the grief injury, loss of charitable people, places, things, cherishable pet. Um, that inner conflict, the moral injury, and of course, the wear and tear, the fatigue, the compounding effects of stress over time. So the stress continuum model, when I first saw this in Baltimore in 2013, I looked at this and I'm like, oh, it's a smoky berry 
fire prevention sign, right? When you're entering the forest and it tells you what level of you know, fire awareness, the green, yellow, orange, and red. So green is ready, you're at optimal functioning, you're, you're having fun. I mean, who's in the green these days, right? We're kind of all um, stressed in one way or the other, but the green zone is really awesome to be in, I know that. The yellow, we're reacting, you know, the, the, um, we're reacting to, to stressors of life. Maybe there's a conflict going on at work or at home or, um, the kids are sick. You have a meeting you're late to. Maybe there's lots of traffic. I mean, you have a flat tire. <sighs> so, um, you're reacting to stress. The orange zone is where we're talking about the injuries the, that we just spoke of, the life threat, the loss, the moral injuries, the wear and tear. Um, these things kind of stick. If we're not looking at the orange zone and getting help and assistance at that time, um, it may lead to the red. The red, post-traumatic stress disorder, depressions, anxieties, that sort of thing, and definitely where the higher level of care is needed. So when we're teaching our firefighters this model, we're saying, hey man, as a peer, as a coworker, as a friend, as a good human, you're looking at the yellow and orange zone saying, you know, I could help folks when they're in this place, right? You could be kind to them. You could offer up assistance. You could give them some tips like, yeah, you're not sleeping well. Well, this help, you know, this works for me or whatever that is. But as peers, we're, we're pretty good at the yellow and orange zone, helping folks, getting them the resources they need. Once they're in that red zone, I mean, I, I tell our, our folks, our firefighters, there's a higher level of care that's needed, and, and I'm not a psychologist, and we need to get them to the, that higher level of clinician care or, or, or you know, the clergy or whatever that looks like, um, promoting that higher level of care. I mean, personally, I've taken um, our firefighters to the hospital. I've taken them to their appointments with a clinician. Um, you know, I can assist in that way. If they don't, you know, if they're not in, in a good functioning manner, I could help them get there. But obviously, um, that higher level of care is needed. So the differences, again, with the yellow and orange zones, I mean, you could see the list. You know, yellow zone, you're bending with the wind, you know, you're, and then the, the injury happens with the, the four majors there. So check, observe, keep track, examine, decide. So look, listen, and feel, just like Annie and CPR, right? Look and listen and feel, just know your people, change in functioning, that sort of thing. Keep track of those anniversary dates and things like that, perhaps, that um, trigger people sometimes. Uh, one-on-one, -on -one, maybe you're the, you know, good friends with this individual, hey, you know, what's going on, or something like that. Or maybe you know a good friend saying, can you take so-and-so fishing this weekend? Just check in on them, right? So check, it's, it's not intrusive, non-intrusive. Um, and then you decide on that spectrum, yellow or green, yellow, orange, and red, what, what level of needs do they have? Coordination, you know, collaborate, inform, refer. So promote the recovery, get more information perhaps. Maybe there's a chain of command that needs to know and then, you know, the, the referral. You know what what's needed here so cover um, so now we're going to get into those five essential areas you know safety and calming and, and uh, connectedness so cover to me um, I obviously told you a little clip of uh, what happened to me up on South Canyon I needed to get to safety and, and my um, mental capacity wasn't allowing me to be safe so somebody had to come and, and quite literally um, make me move. 
However, you don't have to do that every time, right? <laughs> you could be kind of non-intrusive, and maybe if you're in a, a situation that warrants physically moving somebody out of the way, simple eye contact, maybe just a hand gesture or a hand on the shoulder, that promoting of, of safety. Um, so physical safety is there, also mental safety. Um, sometimes I've been in situations after line of duty deaths where, um, for example, when the Ground and Mountain hotshots died in, at Yarnell Hill, I was there um, with the alumni of Granite Mountain, and the hearses, 19 hearses, were coming into Prescott. And we were right across the street from the families. And I was standing with the Granite Mountain hotshots. Here comes the hearses. Oh, um, I mean, just like, how can I, I need to stay standing. Physically, I need to stand here at attention. How am I going to do this? So mentally, I knew about psychology. I'd taken Taekwondo and the focus and open focus and all this stuff. And so there was an American flag across the street from me. And even though I was very much aware of what was going on around me, I kept telling myself, count the stars, count the stars. And so I was counting one, two, three, four. And, you know, that voice in your head is like, there's 50, you know, but no, count the stars. And that... That to me is cover as well. Mental, you know, the ability to cover yourself um, and provide that safe place. So it's standing by, watch and listen, um, make safe, make others safe, protect and warn. And then also encourage the perception of, of safety. Um, you know, I could go back in, in history with my father, who was a US Navy Korean War veteran, and, and my dad loved the sea. He loved the sea, and he had boats, and we'd go out on the Pacific Ocean, and horrible waves, right? And when, well, the summer after South Canyon, 1995, Dad's up in Lynn Canal, Alaska with my mom. Come on up, we'll go fishing, right? <laughs> Double red flag warning, you know, the Lynn Canal was just all over the place, the waves coming over the, the boat and in all directions. I mean, we were going down. I knew it, and I was not doing well. The roar of the, the ocean, it was just crazy. So my dad, one hand on the wheel, and one hand holding his coffee cup, OK? And like, Duh! I know I was like, both hands on the wheel, right? But um, anyway, dad was uh, demonstrating uh, that uh, perception of safety. He's got this. He's got one hand on the wheel, one hand on his coffee cup. I got this. So. Leadership, um, you could do a, a world of help for your people just by the, your presence of confidence. Cover strategies for self. Find those people, places, or actions that feel safe for you. Um, distract yourself by focusing on something near you or holding your breath. Um, no one is perfect. Be aware of your own strengths. So, um, <laughs> The mind becomes accustomed to things by the habitual side of them, and neither wonders or inquires about things they see all the time. So I think this is all about situational awareness, and this is cover, and this is really important to me um, as well. The gamble oak leaf. How many of you used to chase metallic green bugs when you were little and catch them and check them out, right? Do we still do that? Are we still curious enough to do that? We need to do that. Uh, we need to see the sparkles. We need to go down the same highway, same straight stretch we've gone down every day for the last 10 years and look for something new every day. We need to be that aware. 
Um, we were um, lulled by the green leaf of the gamble oak in Colorado. It was shiny and a green. Surely it has moisture contact, right? It won't explode on us. So be aware of that. This, um, speaking of Granite Mountain, uh, to be rather than to seem. To be rather than to seem. So when I went down to Prescott and, and Granite Mountain Hotshots had just perished, that was their um, crew motto. And I'm like, what hotshot crew has to be rather than to seem? Whew. So using curiosity, I, I Googled it, right? And uh, came up as North Carolina state motto. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird. And uh, it was this Marcus Tullius Cicero. He was Italian philosopher of over 2,000 years ago. It's like, to be rather than to seem. Well, more curiosity led to Eric Marsh, the superintendent of um, Granite Mountain, was from North Carolina. So obviously he had brought his state motto to the crew. But having looked up that, that quote and finding these other quotes, I just had to share it with you because I think this habitual side of things really speaks volumes when being safe. So calm, quiet, composed. This is more the physiological response to stress. Stop the physical exertion. You know, this I was corrected recently by a dispatcher. They're like, when I'm in stress mode, you know, they've got the five screens in front of them and everything's going chaos, right? I just need to move. I need to go around the building 10 times. I need to get moving. So depends what your calm looks like. Perhaps it is stop physical exertion. Perhaps it is to promote it. But slow down that heart rate, relax, draw attention outward. I've had some, um, dealt with some crazy, not crazy, but dealt with some um, air attack pilots before that were over line of duty deaths. And, you know, just, you know, that you could just tell they were just amped, right? It's like, how do I bring this guy down? So, um, you know, hey, can I see your plane? Yes. So we go across the tarmac. Can I get in your plane? Yes. So I get in the plane. Can I sit in the cockpit? Yes, don't touch anything. So I sit in the cockpit. I'm like, what's this button? What's this knob do? What's this do? What's this do? About 35 minutes into this conversation, you can just tell he's come down. He's in control. He knows his stuff. He knows the, you know, the dashboard. So um, distract. Tell me about your kids. Tell me about your dog. Tell me about your favorite vacation. But bring that physiological response. Promote sleep. I can't say that enough. Sleep. Sleep, there's a lot of studies out there on sleep. So some of you might recognize this gentleman. I was so excited when I saw that he was from Orange County. We, uh, I think it was approximately about 15 minutes, which seemed like about 15 days. And uh, you, there is a tendency, it, you're sitting in that dark thing and uh, it's hot, it's smoky. You really do wanna, you wanna pick it up and look around to say, hey, you know, do I want to run? And that's the last thing. And that was the hardest thing I think for everybody talking to afterwards was suppress that feeling of I need to jump up and get the hell out of here because it is a, it's a dark, smoky place and uh, you can feel the heat, you can feel the cracking. But the, the biggest thing I think for us was knowing that, that the guy next to you was still sitting tight. He was next to you and being able to uh, let each other know, hey, everybody's okay. Hey, I'm okay. And kind of down the chain. 
All right, so that's a very good illustration of calm. Obviously, they needed a lot of calm while they were in the, their shelters. Okay, so Maslow, hierarchy of needs. The lower one is like food, shelter, clothes, the basic needs. Start there first. Start with, not, maybe not deodorant, but start there first. Think, what does these people need first? Um, the agency didn't know. So we, uh, we had to itemize everything in our red bags. And back in those days, we didn't have computers. So we had to go through catalogs and cut out pictures of Thorlow socks and jockey underwear and all this stuff that we had in our red bags and send the itemized list away to the agency. And they would send a letter back saying, due to the depreciation value of your underwear, we are not able to recoup your cost. So those, that's what we were dealing with in 1994. Connection, human connectedness is so vital to be with, to maintain, I mean, in the near term as well as later on. We talk about reclusive and introverted folks, and we talk about outgoing folks and what are our needs. But even though maybe I was an introverted type, you know, out of the five women on the crew, four of them died. I mean, I just, I disappeared in my cave. But I did need human connectedness, so promote that. Um, your retirees, bring them back. Um, you know, we have a lot of seasonal employees. Bring them back in the winter. Let's go play ball. Whatever that looks like, but promote that connectionness. Instrumental, re I mean, not everyone's into, you know, sitting around knitting or, or doing quilts. Um, one of the mothers of our fallen, the squad boss, John Kelso, his mother, Anita, she literally dragged me that following winter to quilting classes. And so every week for six weeks, I had to go quilt with Anita. And I did it for the mom. I did it for John's mom. Yes, I'm going to go build myself a quilt. I love it. Okay, quilting classes is over. Anita calls me. She goes, Kim, I got a good deal for you. The Lutheran church needs a bell ringer. And I'm like, Anita, I don't ring bells. And she's like, oh, we'll teach you. And so sure enough, she pulls me to... Uh, to their, her little bell club and um, put me in a slot and I started ringing bells and everyone had gray hair except for me and I was a hot shot, right? And I'm ringing bells and we go on tour and all that stuff, right? So that was support in a strange way, but you know, that connectedness. So that's more of an emotional support, but instrumental, we're all doers, right? So get those hammers out and your paintbrushes and go do something. You don't have to do a psychological intervention, but just be together and do something. I have so many stories about how hotshot crews come together and go cut wood for somebody or the widows or whoever, you know, but get out and do something. Some people need lots of information. Some people don't. Some of the families of the fallen, they have their um, investigation report, and it's in pristine condition 25 years later because they've never opened the page. Whereas other families, it's torn and highlighted and page, you know, marked out. So just keep, you know, different things for different folks. Competencies, um, you know, sometimes life can cripple you. Sometimes the events. Can cripple you. It crippled me. I was no longer functioning at, a, at a, any capacity post South Canyon. So, um, you know, but it involves social skills, developing those, those relationships, peer relationships, mentoring's huge, um, occupational skills. Maybe you just need to take a brief pause, step back, do some retraining, you know, refocusing. 
um, and then well-being. Perhaps they just needed some help and problem-solving skills. So having those types of resources at your back pocket. Um, this gentleman here, he, uh, one of our wildland guys, he, he had an issue with um, alcohol. And he's, he's very honest in this clip for us. For me, I actually, I went a different route than I think a lot of people do. And I went and talked with my supervisor um, in past just anecdotal conversations that we'd had. I know that he had had a drinking problem in the past and had worked through it and life was good. So I actually chatted with him a little bit about it and about some of the particular stressors that, that I felt were causing me to, to be drinking more. Um, and it was not easy to do because there's that stigma of talking about your problems at work, but um, knowing that he was someone who had gone through it and just knowing his personality and the, the type of response that I expected to get, I felt like that was a, a good route to take. Okay, so see how he used you know, the competencies in, in looking for help problem-solving type skills. So stop, back up, move forward. Rest, time to recover. Um, don't do things that aren't working. Retrain, mentor back, learn new skills perhaps, and then move forward. So baby steps, baby steps. Okay, last but not least of the seven C's, we have confidence, and this is built on all the literature on hope, right? Trust, hope, self-worth, meaning. So trust in your peers, your equipment, your leaders, your mission. Forgiveness of self, uh, forgiveness of others. For me, forgiveness of self. I had a lot of guilt to, as far as being a survivor. And then I beat myself up for years in that fight, flight, and freeze. I didn't understand why I froze. I didn't have that knowledge and education yet on why the body freezes. And um, as soon as I started speaking public, uh, I'd have various people come up to me, like big burly men, <laughs> telling me, yeah, freezing, this is what happened to me, and da-da-da-da-da. And I'm like, sweet, you know, because um, I didn't know that. And it really validated the, that whole, like, yeah, people freeze. And it's, it's um, yeah. So forgiveness of self, that, that allowed me to take a step forward in the healing process. Um, and obviously, I, I felt very guilty bringing my crew members back out of the East Drainage to come fetch me, too. So that, that, was, a, that was a tough one for me. Imagining the future, making sense, purpose, and faith. This is an example of my uh, crew superintendent from the Primeville Hotshot crew, Tom Shepard. He, uh, he's, um, he's still holding responsibility. What's going through my mind at the time we bailed off into the canyon was that I've lost my guys. They're, they're gone. It was just was overwhelmed by this sick feeling, uh, first of all, that those guys had trust in me, and, and I let them down. That was a hard video for me. Every time I see it, 
And this is one of your own too. And I just love his, his uh, comment about hope. Do you have to have hope? Every firefighter up there has to have hope. And, and to get through any situation, no matter if you're trapped or you're in a situation where you need other people to rescue you, you have to have hope and you have to have faith. And just knowing the guys are coming up, um, hearing those helicopters, hearing the hand crew with starting their chainsaws and their chainsaws going up and hearing that lines were being deployed up towards us, that's what we were holding on to. I remember praying, uh, just asking for uh, guidance and forgiveness and, and making peace. Okay, all good examples of confidence and how we need to um, build that into our lives. So uh, I was up in Boston one time at a Boston Metro Fire Department safety symposium, and, um, and there was a, a, a gentleman there from Harvard, and he... Um, he came up to me after my talk, and he goes, I want to paint, paint you a picture. He goes, pretend you're going down the, the freeway in Oregon. We just got it to 65 or, yeah, in some locations, which I'm so excited because I love driving in California. But anyway, so it depends on where you're at in the nation, how fast you could go. So you're going fast, right? Everything's coming your way. you got your career, your home life, your vacations, whatever's coming, right? Well... Um, you kind of have to keep focus going so fast, right? You got to focus forward. Um, a lot of times, um, after experiencing certain events in life or whatever's happening in in your in your life, you might be uh, looking in that rearview mirror a little too long. And when you look in that rearview mirror and you're going so fast down the freeway, some things might happen that's not too favorable. Um, you may go off the road. And so for the first decade, I, I guarantee you, I was almost 95% looking in the rearview mirror, not doing well. And so focusing forward, learning how to do that. And then you look at your dashboard, of course, and are you going too fast? Do we need to take things off the plate? All those spinning plates up in the sky, are you, you know, maybe we need to bring a couple down for a while. But are we going too fast? How's your fuel level? Are we getting the nutrition and the you know, the physical and the, you know, mental health and, and all that stuff. How's that looking? So um, I was given permission a few years ago by some random individual in the class, and they're like, raise their hand, they're like, well, can you pull off safely at a, like a pullout? And then get out of the car safely and then look backwards and see how far you've come? And I'm like, wow, that's brilliant. Yes, we could do that. We could look backwards and see how far we've come. We never forget our fallen. We never forget what we've gone through in life to get to where we are today. So yes, let's safely look back. But then um, get back in the car and just keep going down. So another uh, quote from our Italian philosopher. The love you gave in life keeps people alive beyond their time. Anyone who is given love will always live on in another's heart. So obviously our, our fallen 14 up there, and, uh, and then the 20th anniversary, almost five years ago, of the, some of the survivors on our, our Primeville crew. Um, so, you know, I just think what you all are doing here um, will serve you well. And uh, just uh, take care of yourselves and your family. Thank you. That's all for this episode. 
I encourage you to go back and listen to the other podcasts in this behavioral health series and to watch the videos. It can be helpful with the PowerPoint slides to follow along with. We hope to bring you more content like this in the future. And if you have any suggestions for future conferences, please reach out to me directly. Until then, take care of each other. We'll talk to you soon.